is up, y'all? It is Scotty, and I am super psyched today. You know, I love reading. I, actually, I won't say reading. I love falling asleep to my Audible books, and these authors become my heroes. They teach me things. They get me thinking. They get me excited about new things. And my latest hero, Mr. Rob Dunn. What's up, brother? Oh, uh, yeah, great to see you, Scotty. Thanks for having me on. Ah, uh, thank you, man. You uh. I really love your books. I love them because the overall theme or what I get out of them at the end is it hasn't all been done. I know a lot of people like to think it's all been done. Everything's been discovered. It hasn't. As a matter of fact, with all like with what we're going to talk about microbes and even just the environment in general, it's a very new field of study and there's so much to learn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that when, when I was a, when I was a college student, I imagined science was kind of done, yeah. but that if I was lucky, I would get, you know, to go, I would keep studying science and I could work out some of those details right. that other people hadn't figured out. And it took me a decade to realize that like most of the big stuff is not figured out yet. And, and we have just like these little, you know, little lighters to light our way. And most of it's totally unknown. And the, the more I study, the more more obvious that becomes to me and to my colleagues that we're we're still pretty ignorant. Yeah, I mean, I like Paul Stamets and I've heard him. I think I was listening to him on Joe Rogan and he was saying, yeah, man, you can go out to the backyard and just go digging and you're going to find something new, something that hasn't been cataloged yet. So we did this study with Noah Fear, who's actually he lives. He's not far from you. He's in Boulder. Oh, nice. And uh, we studied the dust in houses across North America. Yeah. And so it's like CSI dust. And so, you know, you you take a swab in your house and we tell you everything you can we can know about it from the DNA and the swab. And so, like, we've got bacteria DNA and fungus DNA, insect DNA. And when we did that, we found 40,000 kinds of fungi in houses. And that's almost double the number of named fungi. So mushrooms and yeasts and right. all those relatives right. for North America. And so it means that like in your house, half of the fungi aren't named yet. Right. Much less your backyard. And and so, I mean, that's sort of where we are, which is really pretty, it's pretty crazy. I mean, like right now you're breathing in the unknown. I'm breathing in the breath of plants is what I'm breathing. Yeah, that too. Right? <laughs> I think about that. I, I jog and I'll jog at night with a headlamp on and I will just see that just whatever the heck it is, dust or whatever it is that I'm breathing in. And I think about, I don't remember who said this, but they were like every breath you're breathing in several hundred microbes and maybe that's on the light side. But yeah, it always makes me think like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think... That we live in our indoor worlds and we imagine the, the the rest of life is somewhere else, but we're still connected to it. It's just more and more invisible, you know? And so the, but it's also, it's really hard to realize how connected we are to really appreciate that. Like you're, you're covered in microbes, your right. hair is covered in microbes, your gut, your lungs. And, and that there's not, there's not like an edge. There's not a place where you end and they begin that these these are two parts of a well these are many parts of a whole and and i think it's really hard to get get our heads around that oh it's hard to get your head around think about what um i think it was ed young and i contain multitudes talks about yeah. what 4.6 billion years really it's, it's incomprehensible so you think about i think about a new year's party i'm setting up a new year's party and the microbes show up in february or march you know, the plants show up in June or July, you know, animals start showing up December 
you know, we and the show humans up, never get there. No, we show up at like, you know, uh, you know, 12, 59 and 30 seconds. Like, yeah, where's the party, man? I rock this thing. You're getting worked. You've been getting worked since you since you pulled up. You know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's right. Yeah, the well, microbes have been at the party for a long, long time. Right, and they and, probably uh, and they we probably don't even understand what they're partying about most of the time. That's awesome. Hey, I'm so I got too into this, and I never introduced you, or I didn't give you a proper introduction. Honestly, would you? I know you're a professor at NC State. Uh, I know you're an author of some of my favorite books: Never Home Alone, uh, Delicious is the new one, uh, The Wildlife of Our Bodies, Never Home. Jesus, I asked you to introduce yourself. All right, I'll shut up. No, yeah, you did a fun <laughs> job. Um, yeah, so I, I'm at the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. Um, and I study mostly the biology of daily life. And so it's all this stuff you're breathing in, you're running past, and you imagine somebody's already studied it. And most of the time, nobody has. And so that's what, and, and for me, that's great because it's, it's, it's totally new discovery, but it's, it's immediate to everyone. You know, so if we discover a new species, it is right where people live. If we discover a new thing that nature does for us, it's right where people live. And so I really come to enjoy and so it's being at that interface and sometimes it's food. Sometimes it's what's in your bed. Right. But it's, it's all that daily life. I'm, I'm ashamed at my age, but I had to look up what an ecologist was. An ecologist is t- tell me that real quick. Cause I'm sure no, I don't a, know. It's a made up else. word, right? So it comes from the root of uh, it's the study of the house. So echoes is the house. Right. Um, and, and, Really, what we do is we study life's rules. So the rules by which different species interact with each other, the rules by which populations grow. And the idea of ecology is that maybe if we learn those rules, we don't have to study every single detail to still make sense of the living world. And so that's that's what we do is to try to figure out, like, you know, are there some kind of laws to what's going on with life or is it all details? And some days it's all details and some days there are some more laws, but that that's, that's my world. Um, and yeah, it's fun. It's a fun, fun job. If you can get it, it's a good job. I bet. I, I, you always, you were always interested in this is some right from the start or this like for me, I've gotten into microbes. I don't know, probably 40 years old, maybe 30, 30 something years old. I was like, wow, these things exist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I was interested in biology from the start, but I didn't know it took me a long time to know that this thing that I do, that ecology was a field, um, or that it was a, right. a profession, that it was something I could do. And so that really took a long time to sort out like, oh yeah, this is a job. I could do this for a long time and it has value to society. And most of my work is not, um, I mean, some of what I do is very applied, but a lot of it is trying to figure out these rules and then talking to somebody who does something useful. So together we can do something. And so like we work a lot on bread now. And so I, I don't make a new kind of bread, right? But, but in my lab, we found a new kind of yeast with which new kinds of bread can be made. And then I share that with a baker who can make the bread. And That's so I'm pretty- kind of at that one step removed from being useful. So if, you know, if, if you're lost on a desert Island, I'm the guy who can tell you how to think about what's on the Island 
but but I'm probably not who you want. You want me and somebody else. Right. Well, yeah, come on. I'd, I'd say this all the time. I'd be nothing without my team. I'm the guy with the wacky ideas. My team's the one that makes it real. So we all need it. Yeah, team, that's right. Man. That's right. So I need my team and my team includes my friends, but also the public a lot of the time. because we do a lot of work with, you know, the public and it really informs like what questions we're asking or what's interesting. Um, and I mean, they one of the tricks with being in a field like ecology, which not you know people haven't even heard of often, right. is that we get excited about the ideas we're excited about, and we forget that they're weird. And so, being able to talk to the public a lot gives me a chance to remember, okay, yeah, that's a that's the thing only we care about. Right. Here's another thing that everybody cares about. Let me let me look at that instead. You know, and then I do some of the weird stuff too, but. It's just funny you say that, you know, I think about the things that people care about. Again, I fall asleep to your books pretty frequently, so I'm pretty familiar with some of with uh, some of the points. You make a really interesting point. I've tried to talk about it myself. I don't do a good job, but about how powerful our vision is as far as a sense. So when we sense things, so the reason we don't pay much attention to microbes is because we can't see them. Uh, when we, the reason for us cannabis, when I take a look at a, a bud like that, it visually, I'm like, holy crap! It's a, it's a, you know, it, it does something to me. It's funny because between and between the visual and then the taste and smell that's what's important with cannabis these days when it comes to uh when it comes to uh uh actual how the medical effect or how high it gets you that's like third or fourth huh yeah it's kind of interesting in terms of the consumer you mean yeah in in terms of how valued it is i mean we've got people going crazy for the you know as far as doing really uh dedicating their lives a lot of people are dedicating their lives to make the most beautiful tasty uh medicinally uh you know i don't know medicinally valid flower but probably in that order huh i mean so one of the things that so so it's, it's a great point and um like our eyes really drive us and we're very consciously oriented toward our eyes. And so when our conscious brain is thinking about the world, it's very eye centric, eyeball centric. Sure. It's what we see. It's the choices we make. It's why we do crazy things like make lawns, you know, like lawns are this thing we make to appeal to other people's eyes. so They know we have enough money to make a lawn, you know, like that's a, our eyes act and making us do stupid stuff. God, you made me feel bad about my lawns. <laughs> What's that? I said, you made me feel bad about my lawn now, right? <laughs> you know, actually, I think you're supposed to do that. The lawn guru says it all the time. The largest arable land in the country is your front lawn. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's your garden, right? But the way the, what we're gardening is our ability to appeal to our neighbor. Like, hey, yeah. you checked out my lawn. It is green. Which yeah. is, the eyes. There's the eyes again. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I can monoculture just as good as Monsanto can. Look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a weird thing. But and but when Monica Sanchez and I were writing this book, most recent book, Delicious, we had to pay more attention to the nose and the olfaction and smelling. Right. And one of the things we came to realize in writing about the nose is that it's it also plays a really important role, but it's often way less conscious. And, and so you think about that experience of like, ooh, I know that one's good or that's bad with food. But, but you, if you had to describe how you knew, it's really difficult. Or like, oh, that reminds me of a very pl- pleasing experience. 
But again, go ahead and try to write down like, well, what exactly was it? Even? Right. And so it's in there. It's really important in our decision making and like how we rank the world. But but it's it's not it's not up there in our consciousness in the same way. And so we just are not as good at paying attention to it. And the microbial world is all about smells. You know, so that's the that's the most tangible relationship. Tangible is the wrong word because that'd be touch. But it's sure. the most um, physical relationship we have with microbes is to smell them. So if you think about, you know, the smells of bodies, the smells of soil. I mean, Cut lawn, most, man. Those, the lawn. Yeah, that's all microbial. And I had this amazing conversation um, a while ago with Christina Koch, who is a, an astronaut. And she she was on the space station for almost a year. And so we we're talking about all kinds of things. And I started to talk about, well, does she miss life on Earth when she's up there? Or what does she miss? She and better. She said, well, all right. Yeah. She better. <laughs> um, and I think part of the answer was like, she's pretty happy. Like she's she was pre-adapted to live in COVID times. So like, yeah, I can live by myself pretty well. But the other part is she said that when... Um, they have to feed some plants, some experimental plants that they have in the space station. And when they go to feed them, they lift up this top and they can smell the plants and their soil and that they kind of all gather around to have that smell. And so, and that's microbial, you know, yeah, so that's here like they a, are, what is it, actinomycin bacteria is that? What, what is that? I mean, uh, well, it depends what they were smelling. I mean, but, but there's one that produces just, jes- uh, the bacteria is jesmium. I get this mixed up, but there's a, that smell after the rain is produced gotcha. by specific bacteria that produce a particular aroma. And so that's like one that you notice, but, but they were smelling some, some version of the microbial world and it meant, made them feel at home or on earth or connected. And so I, I think this smell part to their story, it's somehow so important, but we don't, like when was the last time you were at a party and you were talking about, you know, the thing I smelled the other day. I'm in the cannabis. So that yeah, happens maybe, pretty maybe. much at most parties. As a matter of fact, guru came over and he said, the first thing he did today was he handed me something, uh, a little bit of concentrates and said, smell this. And oh. it, it is. And by the way, I have the worst sense of smell. So for me, I'm just like, smells like weed. You know, great. But I really, I'm an anomaly in this industry. In this industry, it's more like uh, fine tobacco. We use the same terpene profiles that, to, that uh, was tobaccoists. I don't know what you used to Tobacco aficionados would use. Uh, from wine, we get a lot of the same terpenes as far as, oh, I can taste the myrcene, you know, already. The alpha carophylline. Hmm? Impressed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, I should have done my impressed face, Scotty. I apologize. Yeah. I will tell you, I do have to stop right now. You're a funny guy, man. I've listened to quite a few. There's about three or four really good, uh, you know, hour long. I think you did a TED Talk. I think you did a um, couple really good lectures where you're not afraid to try to make people laugh. And I don't know what happened. What's happened to students? Back when I went to school, it was okay to laugh. And man, you got a tough crowd there. <laughs> it, it varies. I've had some tough crowds, though. I gave a talk once where, where somebody stood up in the back and they said, uh, and it, this wasn't in the U.S., but they said, in this country, we do not make funny during talks. <laughs> <laughs> so you admit it was funny, though, right? That, that, that I felt like it was still a win. <laughs> yeah. Hey, at least you recognized. You, you knew it was funny. You just thought uh, it was misplaced. Uh, yeah, that was 
<laughs> it, it is funny how that it is strange how that goes. You get in front of uh I don't know, you get in front of authority and you just kind of shut up and listen. But it's I don't know, I have a great time interacting with people. That's that's why honestly in these times where we're having a war on microbes, it's uh tough. It's really tough for I got my personality and, and not too much brain. So I better go smile at you and ho- and hopefully uh you know, hopefully get you to like me. It is tough with, you know, when I can't, when you can't see the bottom of your face and it is tough for me because I love spreading the word about microbes. You know, I love saying, Hey, did you know there's microbes all on your skin right now? And they're all around us. I love to tell that story. There's a crazy story in your book about a nurse. And maybe you could even tell this one about the nurse that kept infecting the babies. It was insane. Yeah. So there were, I'll, I'll try to tell a quicker version of it, but there were Thanks. two two nurses. And so this is a hospital in New York. This is the, let me see, get the years right. So 1960. 61. 61. From your Thanks, book. Yeah. See, there's something up there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hear you, Gertrude. But, uh, but so the the story begins that there are a bunch of infections in the, in the, in a hospital among babies. And so there's skin infections. And, and so it's a huge problem. And it will later become clear that these skin infections are the from bacteria that are the ancestors of bacteria that cause a lot of our infections today. And so staff, is that right? Yeah, so these are staff. And we all got these, staff aren't resi- these aren't resistant staff, but they're the ancestors of the resistant staff. And so nobody can figure out what's... What's that? That's important, man. You yeah, that's important. important. You know? That's important for the story. And so nobody can figure out what's going on. Two, two, a scientist and a doctor come, come together and figure out that a nurse is essentially inadvertently inoculating these babies with the with the staff as she goes baby to baby. Well, and, as they're born in delivery, right? Yeah, yeah, in delivery and in the nursery. And okay. I think it's never totally clear if it's actually during delivery or it's in that time after. But then they also notice that there are some babies that get infected and some that don't. And so something different is happening. And so what, what they figure out is that the babies who don't get infected seem as though they haven't been touched by the nurse until like the second day. Right. And so something, something is going on there. And so I'll just fast forward the story a little bit. And it turns out what's going on is that those babies acquire their skin microbes from their mom from other nurses. And once they have them, once their microbes grow over their body and it's like fat, I mean, it, it's so fast that it's like a cartoon and it should have a sound like, wow, you know? man. And, and so they're then covered with this layer. And so when the nurse comes through that she, she gives them her dangerous staff and they're like, and, and the dangerous staff can't compete. It's got nowhere to grow. And so they stay healthy. And so these doctors then figure out, what, what, man, if you could just figure out how to grow a really tough microbe that's not dangerous on the skin of the babies, then you could prevent these pathogens from establishing. Sure. And so they find another nurse. And whenever this other nurse goes to the nursery, the babies seem like immune from everything. And so they get some of the bacteria from this other nurse and they start colonizing babies intentionally. And so it's a different kind of staff. It's like good news staff and it works. And so they then try this in tens of different hospitals 
They recharge the babies. Is that product placement? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just exactly what I'm happens with you. plants, yeah, man. It's exactly what happens with plants. Yeah. So it's exactly what happens with plants. And we didn't I mean we wouldn't know that till later, but it, and, and so it works. And so this is successful and it rids these hospitals of the dangerous staff. And so if you pause there and think about, well, what's the future going to look like? It looked in that moment as though this is just what we're going to do. We're going to garden good microbes on babies and keep them healthy. But then methylacillin, the antibiotic, be, be, is invented and becomes super cheap. And it's way more like the way that doctors are used to doing medicine. It's a pill. It's a pill that keeps you healthy. And so instead of inoculating babies with good microbes, doctors switch to killing the bad microbes with, with, with methylacillin. And what that does is it favors the bad staff versions of it that are resistant to the methylacillin. And so to me, this is like, you see that jar and it says kills 99.9% .9 of germs. Uh -oh. And it always freaks me out because that's the <laughs> worst percentage to kill. You know, it's, 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 it's a, it, so this was what happened. It killed 99.9% .9 and left that 0.1% or what's left. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, or 0.9%, I guess. When that, but the, um, and so that was the resistant staff. That's MRSA. That's the problem we're dealing with today because we chose that model of the future over the one where we garden good microbes. And, and so to and me, again, that's I go back to plants. You know, yeah, it's, it's the same, same as plants. plants. And so we did exactly the same thing with plants. I mean, you were telling me the story about sterilizing roots. Mm -hmm. This is what we taught people to do, right? And now we know, oops. That wasn't a great plan. And uh, so now people are, you know, there are tons of companies working this to figure out what microbe can you sell for corn, for soy, for all these sure. crops, sure, um, for cannabis. And, uh, and, and so in some ways, we're going back to 1960s discoveries to build on them, having realized that we made some mistakes in the intervening years. Man, I'm starting to get a little bummed out because you just said, wow, what a terrible plan. It seems like we were going back to the 1960s with that technology. And I reached out to you about eight months ago, maybe. And when I was just there was just a full on war on microbes going on with the whole COVID thing. And I was trying to make sense of it because I'm sitting here getting so inspired by all the microbes that live around our, our homes and all the opportunity to invent our way or discover our way out of our problems. Uh, all the microbes that are in, uh, on our bodies that uh, we live in symbiosis with and keep us healthy. And then I see just, uh, we're talking about eczema. I have eczema and uh, it'll show up on my hands. As soon as I started using the hand sanitizer, wiped out all the beneficial bacteria. Normally yeah. I'm like an ivory soap guy, you know, something fairly natural and uh, preserves the microbiome. And man, I just, I couldn't bend my hands after a while. I was like, it, my body was telling me, this is bad. TV's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think eczema is a good example because we don't, I mean, it, in a bunch of ways. Like one is super common, but we really don't understand it super well yet. Right. You know? And like, and we've not even, I would say like, 
it's not been studied super seriously. Antibiotics is what they just dumped in me all the time. And then they finally found out it was some type of an allergy that it was also, it's a reaction, like a food allergy. But for, I'd say a decade, I was on erythromycin consistently. Yeah. Well, and I, and I would say where we're heading is that at least for a subset of eczema, people are going to be given probiotics uh, or actual microbial treatments is where people are heading. And I love that. Like idea. A, a lot of these immune reactions on the skin. Right. It's, it's often some mix of like an immune reaction, allergy and a change in the microbes. And, and so, I mean, I, I think like 10 years from now, our understanding of eczema, rosacea, all these is going to be super different and it's going to emphasize how do you grow the species that help you, your skin stay healthy hey, um, this is a dumb question but i'll see sometimes on tv they call things biologicals is that what does that mean does that mean microbial is that just speak for big pharma speak i don't know i think it's mostly big pharma speak i mean the you know part of this is super unregulated so if you put it on your skin it's it's really not regulated. So if it's a cosmetic. Um, God, that is where it was from. You're right. It was like some yeah, cosmetic so, thing. I mean, I think some, some useful words here would be like a prebiotic, which is something you're feeding the mic. You want to feed a particular microbe. Sure. You've got the probiotic, which is often has the microbe with it. And then sometimes people talk about postbiotics, which is kind of just another take on prebiotics. But again, you're feeding the microbes that you have. But the, the trick is we often don't understand like whether they work. And so yogurts, some yogurts, super effective, others right. not. Right. But when you but when you go in the, you know, the store to figure out which ones is totally unregulated with regard to health claims. And so you need to know what species are in it. And, you know, that's that's too much for somebody just to go figure to figure out, you know, and so I think it's kind of a mess at the moment. And I would imagine what species works for your body as well. I imagine everybody's yeah, not right. exactly different. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, and what species even work for your body and your microbes, which makes it even trickier. Right. You know, there could be imagine you had a twin, same genes, but you, you have different microbes. One of you might need different microbial food than the other needs. Jeez. And so, I mean, in some yeah, ways, like I like your story about the party because, you know, the microbes have been partying for a long time and uh, we don't pay enough attention to them. And as a result, they can often make us look foolish. And I think in the coming years, as we understand more and more, we're going to find ourselves having looked foolish a, a fair amount. Yeah, I think we very well might, particularly this last year. And it really does just, I'm going to kick it over to the wildlife of our bodies. When we talk about how we've been kind of hiding from things and we've been, uh, we've been, what is it? What did you say? It was something like when we learned to kill was when we became human. And whether we're killing tigers or cockroaches or the 99.9% .9 of the bacteria on our bodies, it's just kind of like a... It's, it seems to be a human you know, idea or construct to clean and sterilize and, and kill. We shave, you, know, you got your head shaved. You were talking about in, you know, when you go to Africa, they're shaving their heads so ticks and fleas don't get in it, you know? Um, I, I don't know. It just kind of made me think. Yeah, I mean, the we had this default relationship with things that scare us for 
there's a lot in what you just said, but I think one part of it is that, that we've tended, our first reaction when things scare us is to try to kill everything. You know, and, and there are moments in our past when that made sense. You know, if, a, if you lived in a habitat where a giant paleolithic lion could eat your baby, I don't fault you for whatever decision you made about that lion. Sure. Right, right that there's this moment. But, and when we first started to understand that some microbes were dangerous, we had another one of those moments, you know, and this right. is late, this is late 1800s. We start figuring out germ theory, cholera outbreak in London. Oh no, it's not good to poop in your water. I'll write you know, that one down. Think, think and not that drink it. And, and so th there's this realization that the stuff in the water can kill you and that the invisible things can kill you. And it starts this idea that maybe all of the invisible things are bad. And that trickles, trickles along and like every so often it speeds up. And then industry figures out that it can sell us things and at the same time scare us. And so once that happens, there starts to be this incredible, and especially during World War II when it becomes kind of militaristic, like, look, we can kill everything together Right. We can we can destroy the entire dangerous, invisible world. And so that ancient part of our brain was like, yeah, get the dangerous species. And then industry was like, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the tools. And, and, and then and you better do it. Otherwise, your babies aren't safe. Right. And all those things came together in a way that has led us to try to create sterile worlds around us. And I think this year. It, it just played into all of that buildup. It's like 12,000 years of buildup. And, and uh, this year, we, we just went all in. Yeah, I mean, I studied marketing. I didn't study biology. But fear, uh, outrage, greed, those, those are the good ones. Those are the ones that get people yeah, yeah. buying stuff. You know, yeah. it seems like we've been fear and outraged a bunch and not, uh, and, not a ton of education. And disgust, right? Disgust is the other one. Ooh, that's um, a good one. I mean, so like a good example of this is that, and there, there are, um, go with me here. There are two kinds of earwax, dry earwax and wet earwax. There's one gene that controls which one you have. And there's one little genetic letter that determines one versus the other. If you've got wet earwax, it also affects the, your armpit glands. And so your armpit glands feed lots of microbes. And so almost, um, all ancestrally Western European people have that wet earwax type and they have stinky armpits. Damn. Well, much of cold climate Asia has the other version. And if you've got the other version with the dry earwax, you, your armpit glands are basically sealed shut. And so your armpits don't stink. But Arm and Hammer did not like that. And let's not single out Arm and Hammer. The, the antiperspirant industry didn't like that. Right. And so was nonetheless able to market antiperspirant in temperate Asia in the last decade and a half to treat a, to treat a problem that didn't exist so successfully that now, you know, antiperspirant use is sort of a global human uh, norm. Sure. And so I think like that's, that's a powerful um, ex example of the disconnect between what we even plausibly need and what we're willing to buy if we're afraid and disgusted. And you keep on saying industry and I've 
remember that you said you catch a bunch of shit or a little bit of shit from your peers for working in industry. So sometimes you're trying to work with uh, uh, your research, like you were trying to do something with the paper industry, right? Where you're trying to clean up the the black liquor that the paper industry makes. Yep. And you, did, you listened also, to the whole book. I appreciate it, Scotty. Oh, I'm into it, man. I'm, I, this is how I learn. I don't. I've never taken a biology class. Uh, I have to learn like this. So, and I'm really interested in this. I caught wind of this by asking, "What the hell is just like the, We had to figure out what was going on with the baby, and why all of a sudden uh, some were getting sick and some were getting better. I had to figure out what that was out with my plants and my living depending on it. And when I found out that the beneficial bacteria existed, I started exploring them and uh and having you know having really great results with them yeah i started being a real voracious consumer of the information i had dave montgomery sleep over the house (laughs) (laughs) anyway but it just you said something let me see if i got it here it's hard to do work that your friends don't value and you were talking about what a click it is when you start doing this kind of stuff if if the other researchers kind of don't value your work, it's hard to get favors. It's hard to get grants. You know, it's uh, and do you find that with it was some I mean, if you're cleaning up the paper industry, nobody's interested in that work. They're interested in watching Game of Thrones again or what, man? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, that's, that's a good question. So for sure. So if you're doing something that's. In science, we we build uh, these little worlds that are kind of independent of the real world around answer, answering particular questions. And those have a lot of inertia. So like the thing you were studying 10 years ago, it's often the thing you're still studying. And so to do totally new things, initially it's really hard because there's there aren't a bunch of other people trained to do that. And so you have to make people pause and really think, and you need to get them on a good day when they've got energy, they're not tired, they didn't go to too many meetings, mm-hmm. and you need them to really think about an idea, talk about an idea. And, you know, part of it is you finding the right friends. And so I've got my friends that when I've got a new idea, I call them, right? You know, which is, but a lot of the time it's hard to get people excited about a new thing because there's just that. That's staying power of what people have always done. And, and so for me, one of the ways that I try to do it is by working with people that know totally different things. And so it's all new for them. You know, sometimes that's working with people not at the university who are just interested in a question. And right. so like that paper example is a good one. Like they're just people who have a problem. How do we get rid of this paper and pulp waste? Um, you know, sometimes that's the public or we, or we work with bakers a lot. Like bakers have these problems. Like my bread does this problematic thing. Well, that's something about the microbes in the, in the, you know, in the dough. And my, my peers don't need to care about it if I've got that other person to care about it. Got it. And so I've, and so over time I've made these friends that are, you know, in film studies or English or, uh, you know, archeology, span so I can go and go, hey, we, you're not in my field. Is this an interesting idea or not? You know, is this um, viable? Is this something I should be spending my time on? And that's, I spend, I mean, we all spend a lot of time thinking about that. I mean, you must have it too. Like, is this, is this what we should be focusing on? Is this what we want our team doing? 
Right. And and you have to learn to ignore some of the feedback because if it's really an exciting new thing, almost always that's the thing that your immediate people are going to tell you is probably not what you should do. And so when we first started studying life in houses, it was like this. People were like, well, we started studying insects in houses with a bunch of friends. And and I, I asked my colleagues, you know, are we going to find anything interesting? I'm like, nah, that, that it's boring. It's it's not interesting species. And they're all, you know, problem species. And I can tell you what they are right now. And they would list them. Dun, 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 dun. Right. Well, in the first house we went into, uh, there were a hundred some species and most of them were totally different things than anybody expected us to find. You know, there were like 10 species of spiders, a lot of which only live in houses. And, and so there are all these stories that we then had to explain. And it, now we've worked on this for like eight years and it's been super exciting. We've discovered new species of animals in houses. Yeah. I mean, think about and, that spider. You just you discovered a new way to make a 3D printing nozzle by watching the spider uh, print its web, basically. I mean, that is insane. Yeah, yeah. So right, so all this kind of stuff that you, you know, you got to break free of like this inertia of what the way we've always done. When I hear somebody say, "Well, you know what we've always done," in my head, I think, uh, yeah, that's probably not what I want to do. Right. Um, right. Got to be a better uh, way. And I think also like in, when the world is, if we understood everything or if the world was static, that would make sense as an approach, you know, like, oh yeah, we've always done that because we've, we've got the society we want and the world's not changing and climate's not changing. Let's just right. keep doing that. Right. But given that we don't know most of what we could know and the world is changing super rapidly the odds that what you've always done is the good thing, um, often pretty low. Uh, and, and, and so, like, I'm way more attracted to, like, you know what we could do? Right. Or, hey, I've got, a, I've got a crazy idea. Hear me out. Like, that's, that's a great sentence for me. I've got a crazy. <laughs> and sometimes it's, it's totally wrong. But you don't get to the right stuff unless you allow your conversations, your brain to go over the wrong fairly often. I think my team's probably nodding right now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, I sometimes think, you know, it does depress me. You see all the plastic, everybody's, you know, single use plastic and everything more than ever now, the gloves and all that. And I've always, it's bothered me, you know, and I, I would always ask micro people, uh, micro people, experts on microbes or authorities, I'll say, do we have any microbes that would degrade plastic? And they say, yeah, we have some. They don't do it fast enough. They burp out a big burp of methane at the end, which is just as bad. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, this is depressing. And then when you learn that there's, you know, so much more left to be discovered, all of a sudden you say, let's get to work. I'll bet you. I bet you that there is a microbe here. Actually, did you check this one out? I wanted to just ask if you saw this. Climate-friendly microbes chomp dead plants without releasing heat-trapping methane. This was like on, I think, Science Daily or something like that. People are working at this, and they're discovering things. My my friend Carlos Goller, who is also at NC State, uh, so he works some on tap water, and he does a lot of work with students. So he brings a bunch of 18-year-olds together, and they do discoveries together. 
And he he's discovered a bunch of new strains of this microbe called Delftia in tap water on campus, and they precipitate gold. And and so like they don't make gold, but imagine there's a little bit of gold in the tap water or in right. waste water and right. waste streams. There often is that they make it into into clumps. And it's like, well, that's crazy. I mean, how could there be, you know, and and so that kind of stuff is all over the place. And so if we pay attention to the living world, there are all these solutions out there. Right. Um, but you got to be paying enough attention to, to look for them. Um, and you have to not get caught up in that. What most of what we do is, you know, like what most of that just grinding slowly forward on the same old things. Right. Um, and so, I mean, that's, I would say like one of the greatest parts about my job is that I do get to meet lots of people who are figuring these things out on the edges, you know, and right. Uh, and that's often pretty private from the public. Like the public doesn't see that. Like when you're in the hallway and somebody says, Oh my God, you won't believe what I just saw. Right. Now that's, I mean, the- but for me, that's super motivating because I can feel that we're like, we're doing something. We're moving forward into the darkness shining a little bit more light and and uh you know that's a that's a that's a great part of the gig yeah you're 100 percent right and it's not i don't think it is all coming out of universities i i have aquaponics growers group my buddy potent yeah, right. steve that's teaches right. me about aquaponics they can't bullshit through that man they have to know what's going on there and you there's there's a lot to be learned from that i guarantee you these guys are doing innovative things in the you know, under the premise of growing amazing, flavorful cannabis, cannabis, uh-huh. you know. I mean, so one of our examples with this is bakers and chefs and bakers and chefs have to know their stuff, right? Because somebody's buying it. Somebody's making a choice. And if the price is high enough, they're making a pretty refined choice. Right. And and so one of the really interesting things that chefs have started talking about is this. It's a. And we write about this in Delicious, like it's part of the new thing, but the um is kukumi, which is this new taste. And it's it's still unclear what kukumi is. It's it's there's an old Japanese word, kokoku. I was just getting for, used to umami, all right. What's that? I said I was just getting used to umami. Now I got kukumi. Yeah, so this is this is like the new umami. And scientists are not sure about it, but chefs, and especially Japanese chefs, are like, no, actually, this is a thing. <laughs> we, we, we can appreciate it. We can, we can find ways to favor it. We can find ways to share it with our customers. You guys got to go figure out what kind of thing it is, but it's a thing. And, and so those are great moments for me because, like, oh, there's a bunch of knowledge there. And it might not be formulated in the way I would formulate it, but if we can have the right conversation, we can figure out like, well, what is it? And another super fun one like that is there's a Korean word, soma, and I never say it quite right, but so forgive me if there are Korean speakers listening, Um, but it means hand flavor. And so it's the flavor that a chef gives to their food via their hands. Yeah. And so (laughs) that's that's tough to digest. Yeah. So we talked to my, one of my students, Emily Meineke, and she talked more about it and uh, with her husband, Joe Kwan. And we, and by the way, my bro, my buddy, wonder, hang on. My buddy is a huge Avid Brothers fan. So when you said Joe Kwan, his ears perked up. So I'm sorry. All right. Yeah. So that is, is that Joe, but so that Joe who's 
also a, a chef and his mom makes amazing kimchi. And so well, what if the flavor is actually microbial? What if it's the chef's hands actually contributing microbes to the food? And so we would go on to do a study about this, not with kimchi, because kimchi is really hard. It's super complex food, but with sourdough bread. And we were able to show that the, the bakers making sourdough starters actually give some of their skin microbes to the starters, you which then to. flavor the bread. And But this all starts because of a conversation really about a cultural concept of a flavor and listening to that idea. Um it's, it's and so really, I think that that's such an important part of how we learn. There's a, there's knowledge out there all over the place. And how do we get better at listening to it and, and building on it? Isn't that the most real way to preserve life is through a starter? Get my great grandma's microbes on there and then you can make, have a live, live forever a little bit, at least till I, I uh, think so. Elon Musk. I think so. Yeah. I mean, so I've talked to philosophers about this and it, it alternately excites them or makes them really uncomfortable. Um the extent to which our being is partially microbial and our microbes can keep going after us. How do we think about that? So if, if a little bit of microbial Scotty is still around in a thousand years, but, but a uh, smoking growing Scotty isn't, uh, are you still there? What a trip, man. Mind blown, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I could keep going forever with your brother. Well, that's been super fun, Scotty. Yeah, it's really cool. Hopefully, I get to do it again. I love to. I get to read. I obsess over the books. So I'll read a, a couple of them. It takes me about a month. Cause I, you know, don't don't be offended. I fall asleep. Hey, they take longer to write, so that's fine. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, I can't wait. I got two or three more. Come on, give me give me your the wildlife of our bodies. Never home alone. Delicious. All about flavor is the new one. Yeah. Uh, Every Living Thing is the first one. That's about how much we know and don't know. Never Out of Season um, is about plants and, and, and growing stuff that um, we should be growing and the bigger story of that. And they're all really about our relationship with other species, right? I mean, right. And I, I kind of write the same book again and again in different, in different, <laughs> in different ways um, because this, it's meaningful to me to think about our relationship with each other and with other beings. And so that's what I keep coming back to. Brother, it is super meaningful to me as well. I can't imagine when, you, when I do a show where there's, you know, I talk to a few thousand people a day. It makes it makes my week. It makes my year when people come up and say that that something I said was meaningful to them. Your books are amazing. They really have uh, helped me a lot through this whole weird. First off, I had a lot of time to read. <laughs> but but second of all, I was really confused, especially just being a self-educated microbe person about what's going on it just didn't make a lot of sense to me uh the the wildlife of our bodies talks about how we have microbes everywhere whether in our appendix or all over our bodies uh and then the the uh oh shoot what am i thinking never home alone talks about how good luck trying to get rid of microbes you're going to try to get rid, rid of them on the uh at the supermarket checkout good luck they want to wipe that clean guess what you did pathogens right coming here more microbes are coming in anyhow it just didn't make a lot of sense to me man so reading your books at least i was able to have somebody with no filter no television no no sales you know what you know advertising influences tell me about how microbes really work in me and around me and that was a real big help for me brother 
I really appreciate it, Scotty. It's been a lot of fun and um, look forward to talking again sometime soon. Absolutely, man. Thank you. Take her easy. Some people love to blaze up the deck. Yeah, we get happy for noon. And with the boss fans is to take a little break. That means we're lighting up a dude. It's just weed. It's just weed. I like to keep a good buzz on, on, on. It's just weed. It's just weed. In my toolbox, there's a bone. Some people start their day off with a pill. It's what the doctor says to do. They shake their heads and natural medicine. Go ahead and try something new. It's just weed. It's just weed. I like to keep the good vibes on. It's just weed. It's just weed. I like to smoke it out of Okay, wait.